Good morning. Wow, I like the new pulpit. I haven't been here since this. Drew was telling me about it, but I haven't, I haven't been here since this has been installed. So, Well, uh, my wife wasn't able to make it here this morning, but um, she wishes she could be here. And uh, I'm excited to be in town for a little bit and um, preach the word of God to you. And uh, I just want to start off by asking you a question. A rhetorical question for some of the kids, but who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What's the first thing that you think of when you hear that question? Now, there's a lot of right answers. You know, Jesus, he's like the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the creator of all things. All things in heaven and earth have been created by Jesus Christ. He's God the Son incarnate. Truly God, truly man. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's our great husband. He's the the warrior king, the hero who accomplishes salvation for his people by sacrificing his life. He's the Lamb of God. He's our great high priest. All of those are are, our right answers. But this morning I want to look at a passage, a, a very familiar passage, that tells us not just facts about Jesus, which are important, they're saving facts, but tells us who Jesus really is, what he's like in his heart. So open your Bibles with me, please, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we're going to be covering verses 11 um, through the end of the chapter, 11 through 32, the parable of the prodigal son. And this passage points us, I think, in one of the the clearest ways, especially in story form, to what Jesus is really like deep down. Because it's so easy for all of us, and and I'm the, the chief of sinners in this area, but it's so easy for all of us to become distracted from what Christianity is really about. We can, especially in the world that we live in today, we can look around us and we can we can start to, to uh, equate Christianity with, with certain worldviews or certain culture wars. And those things are important. The Bible is very clear about what's true and what's not true. And, and the Bible is offensive in, in today's day. But Christianity is all about Christ. And it's all about Jesus and his person. So as you turn there in Luke chapter 15, um, I have four questions that I want to ask and answer this morning about this passage. Four questions. From this passage, number one, who is telling the the story? Well, it's going to be a story, the story of the prodigal son. We already know it's Jesus. But specifically, this is Jesus in the Gospel of Luke because the different Gospels have different theological emphases, right? Each Gospel is given for a reason. We need all four of them. And, And the Gospel of Luke is specifically written so that we might have an accurate account of what happened when Jesus walked the earth. That's what Luke writes. He says, he says to the most excellent Theophilus, he talks about in Luke and Acts, about how he's writing an accurate account so that we might believe. It's facts, it's truths, it's an account of what happened, but it's for a purpose to drive us to believe, to put our confidence and our trust and our faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the one who can save us from our sins. So all throughout the book of Luke already, you know, it starts off with, with John the Baptist and his birth and then the birth of Jesus. And then we, we kind of skip ahead in Jesus' life until he's a child and then into his, into his earthly ministry. And, and in this, this context, 
We just need to remember that this whole book is driving towards one thing, to get us to put our trust and our hope in Jesus as the Messiah. So who's telling the parable? First question. It's obvious. Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus himself. Second question. Why is he telling this parable? Why is Jesus telling this parable? Well, look down in your Bibles at, at Luke chapter 15, but let's, let's go up to verse 2 or verse 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So already in the Gospel of Luke, there's been three major encounters with the Pharisees over this specific issue. The Pharisees are upset that Jesus is spending time with the sinners, with the, the worst of the worst, with people who are, who are not the religious, uh, really the conservative religious people. Jesus is, is spending time with people that are, that are known to be great sinners. And so he tells them different things like, only the sick need a doctor, right? He, he says things like, um, those who are forgiven much love much. Finally, he says that the unrighteous are invited into the banquet, and the righteous, or those who consider themselves to be righteous, the self-righteous, are excluded. And so Jesus is having all of these encounters with the Pharisees throughout the book of Luke, and, and there's another one that starts this section where Jesus is going to tell three stories. And I want to focus on the prodigal son, but I'm just going to read um, the first two stories because I think it's going to help us understand this parable better. So, Look down in your Bibles with me. We've already read the first two verses, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 10. Remember the context of Jesus talking to the, to the Pharisees. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman? Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Two awesome stories. And they're, they're connected. They basically have the same structure, right? There's a loss of the sheep and the coin. There's a, a diligent searching and seeking to find. Then there's the discovery, right? And then there's a party. There's one, one, uh, one commentator that just says, lost, found, rejoice, right? We see this pattern. Lost, found, rejoice. Lost, found, rejoice. And then that brings us to our story today, and that's going to be important, that little note about the structure of lost, found, rejoice um, as we work through this parable. So finally, or as my third point, what is the parable, right? Let's just, let's just dive into the text. 
and uh, I'll make some comments and explain it. It almost just preaches itself, so. Verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So the story starts off, right? We have three characters. We have the father and two of his sons. And the younger son asks for his share of property or what we would call his inheritance, right? The, the, son, or sorry, the son asks his father for his inheritance. And sometimes when we read the Bible, at least I, I do this sometimes, the Bible has so many crazy stories and so many weird things. I'm reading through the Old Testament with my wife. You know, we read one chapter in the mornings, and it's like the weirdest stuff in Genesis. And So you, sometimes I think when you approach the Bible, you think, this is so weird. I don't know. Maybe that's just what they did back then. You could just ask for your inheritance. But this is, this is the same as if we did this today, right? If, you, if someone went to their father and said, Dad, I want my inheritance. That's not something that you do. It's, it's disrespectful, right? And what he's really communicating is, I don't care about you. I basically just wish you were dead so I could have all your stuff. That's the idea. It's not just like, oh, can I have a loan or can you increase my allowance? This is, this is blatant disrespect of this younger son. But what does he do? The father, he divides his property, right? I mean, he probably had to sell things and liquidate them, but somehow he, he gives the money to the younger son. And why does he want the money? It's not like, you know, he's... He's going out and investing it so he can return it to his father. But look in, look in verse 13 to see what he does. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So we see the blatant disrespect of the younger son. And then what does he do with the money? Why does he want it? He wants it so that he can blow it so that he can use it on things that are a waste, right? He, he goes and, and totally wastes it all with, with reckless living. Later in the parable, we find out from the, the older brother that this includes prostitutes. This is the equivalent of going to Las Vegas or down to Mexico for some kind of um, party, and, and there's this loose living and, and, and um, sexual immorality and drinking and carousing. This is the idea, and he wastes all of his money. And so as, the, as the, the Jewish listener, you're already thinking about what in Deuteronomy? What's, what does the law say about a son who's disobedient? Death. This isn't just, you know, discipline. This is, this is already, they're, they're, they're thinking this, this is the worst thing you could do. That you're going to actually disrespect your father that much to say, I wish you were dead, and then go waste all of the money? But what's the result of, of this type of living? Some of us can, can answer that with our own personal testimonies. But, but look at verse 13. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Remember, Jesus is talking to Jews, right? What are Jews not allowed to eat? 
pigs, right? In the Old Testament, this is one of the, the very clear ceremonial laws of how Jews are to be different from the nations around them. And the son has already gone into a far country. He's already left Israel. Remember, in the Old Testament, God, God's promises were connected to one group of people that sometimes Gentiles were included, but they're in the land. It's connected to geography. If you want to be close to God, you need to live in Israel. You need to be able to go to Jerusalem for all of the feasts. You need to be able to go to the temple and see the sacrifices. So the son's already left that. He's gone into another country. He's left not just his home. He's not traveling, but he's left his religion behind. And then he ends up feeding pigs. I love what Jesus is doing here in the story. It's like he's, he's making it more and more dramatic. This, this type of living, this type of disrespect that should merit death, that then he wastes on everything, leads to him being associated with one of the most unclean things in the Old Testament. So to the Jewish mind, this would have been so much more shocking than, than it is to us necessarily. And not only is he feeding pigs, not only has he hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, but he actually is so hungry because of the famine that he wants to eat these pods that the pigs are eating. I think it's like carob pods or something. I don't really know what a carob is. I think they're purple. But uh, some kind of weird thing that has no really nutritional value. Oh, chocolatey. Okay. Man, maybe it's, maybe it's a good thing, I guess, if it's chocolate. I don't know. They reinterpret the whole thing. I don't think it's, it's, it's not as good as chocolate. I'm just going to, theologically. <laughs> he wants to eat these, this pig food, right? I mean, this is like eating dog food. It's like some kind of fear factor thing. That's what he wants. He wants to be fed with this horrible food. And, and this is the point. I mean, we know this story, right? This is, we see this sometimes in our own lives. We see this in some of our, our children, Citizen friends, siblings, parents. Sin has consequences. We all know that. But how does he respond to this situation? It's the first good thing the son does, the younger son. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, I like that, he woke up, he comes to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In the midst of, of this sin, in the midst of the consequences of his sin, he thinks back to the life that he left. He thinks back to his father who's provi- who had provided everything for him, who even was gracious and merciful to give him his inheritance. And he remembers that even the slaves, even the servants that were in his father's house, they never were in the situation that he's in. They always had more than enough to eat. Because the father's a good provider. So he, he turns back and remembers his father's character. And he hatches a plan. I, I, we have all done this, you know, you have to have a hard conversation or, or an important one. You want to ask for a raise or ask someone to marry you. And you make a plan. You, you think of the things that you're going to say. Because this is important. This is not a day-to-day conversation. He says, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say, Father, what I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, sinned against God and against you, treat me as one of your hired servants. The son, although he remembers his father's house, right, 
He thinks there's no way that I'm going to be able to return and have the same status that I had originally. There's no way that I can just go back to the Father and say, I'm back and go to my old room. He says, what? I've got to do something to make up for this. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And then I, and I imagine him, right? He, he, he actually goes, we'll see in the next verse, and, and travels to his father's house. And, and the way I imagine it, and this is not necessarily clear in the text, but I think it serves the point well, is he's repeating this to himself. He's traveling. He's got this plan of what he's going to say to his father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. No longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer willing to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he, he's traveling back. And look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father... While he's still a long way off, what does that mean? What's the father doing? He's looking, right? The idea is in this story, in the parable, he's looking out from his house, and he's looking at the horizon. And, you know, you could think maybe somebody walks over the horizon, and it's, you know, every father knows what their children walk like and how they talk, and he sees, is that my son? They get a little closer. It's not my son. Another figure, is that my son? No. But finally, he sees him because he's waiting, because he's looking. Similar to the other two parables, he's actively searching, right? He's diligently looking, like the, the shepherd with his sheep and the woman for her coin. And he runs out and embraces him and kisses him. And continue verse 21. And the son said to him, here's the plan, right? Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Or Father, I have sinned, I think that's the NAS, and in your sight. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you in the ESV. I've sinned against heaven and before you. Oh, I'm, I'm, oh, here we go. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And what's the next part of the plan? Treat me as one of your hired servants. But, but look at verse 21. He doesn't say that. He says, Father, sin against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants. So he, he's, he's rehearsing his plan, right? He's saying, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he, he doesn't get to the treat me as one of your hired servants part before the father starts talking to somebody else. He's embraced him, but then now there's, there's servants over here, and he says to the servants, what? Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Right? It's an awesome story. He can't even get his, his plan that he's rehearsed out before the father interrupts him. He can't even say, treat me as one of your hired servants, 
before the Father gives him this robe. And, and robes um, often are, are it's not something that just anybody has. A, a, ser- a slave or a servant wouldn't have a robe, right? It's kind of a status symbol. This ring could possibly be the ring that a son would have bearing a father's seal. And then, then shoes, sandals. Some people say that you know slaves don't have sandals. I don't know if that's true, but... But the idea is the father silences his plan to work his way back into the father's favor with all these demonstrations that he's fully accepted, that he's fully restored, that everything that he once had is is restored to him. And then there's a celebration, right? Then the fattened calf is killed and there's a huge party. And this is where we see, right, with the shepherd with his sheep, right, lost, found, Rejoice. And we see with the coin, the woman with the coin, lost, found, rejoice. And then we see the parable of the prodigal son. What? Lost, found, and everyone's partying, right? Everyone's celebrating. This is where we usually end when we think about the prodigal son. We think, okay, that's the point of the parable. Great. And that is great, right? It's good news that Jesus celebrates over sinners. It's good news for all of us, even in the last week. But not everyone's partying. Usually in the Bible, when you see repetition, right, you see, um, you see something repeated twice and then there's something different or repeated five times and there's something different following, oftentimes the main point is the part that's different. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It, is, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older brother, instead of rejoicing, is angry. He's upset. And any guesses, you know, actually in this, in this parable, Jesus is the father, right? Jesus is the father, and we can all probably insert ourselves into the, into the younger son category, but some of us might be in the other category, but who's the older son? Who's the older son in the context? Remember, these people came to him and said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees. The Pharisees are, are the older son, and, and, and this older son is upset. He's angry at this lavish love that the father has manifested on the younger son. They're upset, or he's upset. What, what does he say? He doesn't, you know, he compares. He says, I've never even gotten a young goat, right? He got a fattened calf. I never even got a goat. My friends, I guess maybe, I mean, I like goat, but I guess fattened calves are a lot better back then than goats, but 
right? He says, I've never disobeyed your command. I've been here the whole time serving. I'm out in the field. I'm working hard. And then he distances himself from his brother. He says, you know, he's speaking disrespectfully to his father now. And he says, this son of yours, right? There's no love between these two brothers. We see he's just self-righteous. And so although, you know, we love the parable of the prodigal son, and we, we should, and we think, when we think about it, we think about the prodigal coming home. We think about this lavish love and grace of the father, but the parable ends like this. The parable ends with the father rebuking the older brother, saying it's fitting, it's right when you lose something and you find it to rejoice. Lost found rejoice. Lost found rejoice. And it should be in this situation, lost found rejoice again, but it's not. So we see this parable, right? We see this whole story. We know that this whole parable is driving to the point in the book of Luke to get us to believe in Jesus. But this parable also answers the question. Um, this is the, the fourth question. What's the point of this parable? This parable also answers the question, what is Jesus really like? We can say he's the king of kings. We can say he's the Lord of lords. We know he's God the son. We, we, we can rehearse all of these things. But what is Jesus really like? Jesus rejoices over those who see their need, not those who try to earn their way. Right? That's the main point of this text. Jesus rejoices over those who see their need and not those who try to earn their way. This is, this, this is directly applied to Jesus, right? He's, he's the father in this parable. He is the one who is rejoicing to receive back sinners. The younger brother, right? And, and I think we can, you know, one thing to clear up about this passage too is in, in the end of this parable, we see that Jesus says, um, that the, the older brother, you know, has no need. He's been with him the whole time. The older brother claims to have never disobeyed a command. But what we see later in the book of Luke is that actually the Pharisees, in another parable, are not invited in. Not only does Jesus not rejoice over those who try to earn their way, but he actually rejects them. And so in this, in this parable, we see that actually the older brother doesn't exist the older brother only exists theologically in the meaning right when we compare ourselves to other people the only time that we can feel self-righteous is when we compare ourselves to other people right when we look at someone else and say i haven't done that but as soon as we start to think about the standard of god the standard of a holy god that's when we see our need right because what does God require of man? God created us in his image to exercise dominion, to display his glory, to obey. And what have we done? We've fallen short of that glory. His standard is what? Jesus says it in Matthew 5, 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Remember what James says, his brother, James 2, verse 10. For whosoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So we are not going to be judged before God on a curve. We're not going to be able to 
point at someone else and say, I'm not as bad as that person. This is not a competition. I use this with the, with the youth group. You know, comparing yourself to other people is like having a, a long-distance jumping contest into the Grand Canyon. Are you going to uh, brag about it on the way down that you made it three feet farther than the other guy? No, because the standard of God is perfection. He requires perfection. He's a holy God and cannot have sin in his presence. And so all of us are this younger brother, right? Think about what Adam did in the very beginning. The younger brother says, Father, I don't really care about you. I just want your stuff. I basically want what you have. What, is, what do Adam and Eve say? Or what, what does Satan say to Adam and Eve that they believe? You will be like God. They're not content to be his creatures, and they respond in rebellion. They take all of these things that they have been invested with, the image of God, their, their kings and queens, and they waste it. All of these riches that God has created mankind to have have been wasted by Adam and Eve and then by each one of us under Adam's influence. So all of us are the younger brother in this parable in the sense that we all have a need, that we all stand before God condemned. But we also see in this parable not only the gospel, But we also see that this parable directly addresses our tendency towards self-righteousness. Not just in the older brother, but also in the younger brother. The law is written on our heart, right? That's what Romans 2 says. We actually know enough, just being created in the image of God without the Bible, to know from Romans 1 as well that, that we are sinners and that the things that we do are worthy of death. That's what Romans 1 says. Every person knows that there is a God and that the things that we do, the sins that we commit, deserve death from God. Every person knows that. And that law is still written on our hearts. And so even when we come to the Lord, of course, this is a great parable for, for those of us here who might not know the Lord Jesus yet as a Savior. But for those of us who are already Christians, which is most of us, this, is, this parable directly addresses our tendency to turn back to the law, to turn back to earning God's favor, to turn back. And, and what does that look like? Well, when we're, when we're caught in sin, when we're convicted, sometimes we want to wait before we can approach God again and ask for forgiveness. We feel like we have to uh, maybe not literally whip ourselves, but whip ourselves or, or wait a certain amount of time as if God's anger needs to cool down. This is on each one of our hearts, and it's even on the younger son, right? He says, I'm going to go back and earn. I'm going to go back and try to work my way into God's favor. But the father, which is Jesus here, interrupts, interrupts his desire to earn, interrupts his desire to merit, and gives him the robe and the ring and the sandals. And then, of course, we see it as well in the ultimate example in the rejection of the older brother. See what? That Jesus rejoices over those who see their need and not those who try to earn their way. And that's not just true for those who are not Christians. That is true. If there's anyone here who's not a Christian, you can never earn your way to God. Jesus offers salvation as a free gift. But for most of us who are Christians who know the Lord, we still must turn to the mercy 
of Christ alone for forgiveness. We live our life by faith alone. We're not just justified by faith alone, but every day we stand before God based on the righteousness of another, a righteousness outside of ourselves. That's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the main point of the sermon is this. Jesus rejoices over those who see their need and not those who try to earn their way. And we'll just close with this. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus rejoices over those who see their need, right? We see that lost found rejoice, lost found rejoice. I mean, that's already good news enough that, that we as sinners, when we repent, are celebrated by God himself. But look at verse 12, or sorry, verse 2. I'll just read 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. This is in the exhortation from the author of Hebrews to hold fast to their faith, hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right, we've seen Jesus rejoices over those who see their need and not those who try to earn their way. We see there's a party in heaven every time a sinner repents. When you repented, there was a party in heaven. There was joy. There was rejoicing. There was a celebration. But we also see that although this, this joy is not only about our salvation, it's also honoring God the Father, but we see that this was the motivation for why Jesus went to the cross. What's the joy that's set before Jesus? What's the joy that's set before God the Son, right? Jesus in eternity, had equal glory and fellowship and communion in the Trinity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There was nothing to be gained. There was nothing that was needed by God. He's not served by human hands. But the Father gives us as sinners to the Son as a gift, as a people to redeem. And the Son comes and as we are the love gift from the Father to the Son, comes and obeys the law in our place and dies on the cross for our sins to restore us to the Father. And this is the joy that was set before him. Us. We are part, not all, but we are part of the joy that was set before Jesus. This celebration, this party that started the day that we repented, that will continue on in eternity when we were with, with Jesus in heaven forever, this was the motivation for why Jesus went to the cross. That even though we deserve death, even though we deserve judgment, even though we deserve to be stoned for our disrespect of our Father who's created us, Jesus takes our place. He bears the wrath that each one of us deserves so that he can continue to celebrate and rejoice over those of us who see our need in heaven forever. This is good news, right? Jesus rejoices over those who see their, or see their need and not over those 
who try to earn their way. Let's pray.